everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning, or the CTL. My name is Dr. Quartez Scott, and I am the Inclusive Pedagogy Lead in the CTL. And on behalf of our entire center, I want to thank you all for joining us here today, and we appreciate you and uh, the time that you're giving to this episode. So I'm excited for today's uh, episode because of my interest in the topic in particular. So today we'll be discussing anti-racist teaching. This discussion is of personal interest to me as anti-racism is a part of my own research agenda. In fact, my dissertation explored a university racial equity center through Dr. Irvin Kennedy's framework of anti-racism. So I'm really excited about today's uh, conversation. Today's guest is one of our own SCU Boulder with expertise in the subject area as well. Let me also note that I was nudged by our director, Dr. Uh, Kirk, uh, Dr. Kirk Ambrose, who informed me that I really needed to meet Dr. Jennifer Ho uh, when I first started working at CU. But it actually was funny because we did not meet until I happened to sit in on a session that was being facilitated for, uh, I believe it was incoming faculty to the university, but I was hearing her talk about her experiences with faculty during the onboarding process. And I was really captivated by her words and as well as her passion for teaching and teaching inclusively more specifically. So I'm honored to bring uh, Dr. Jennifer Ho onto the show today. So Dr. Jennifer Ho serves as Professor of Ethnic Studies at CU Boulder and is the director of the Center for the Humanities and the Arts, who specializes in Asian American culture and critical race studies. Everyone virtually, because we can't do it in person, but please welcome Dr. Ho to the show. Thank you for having me, Dr. Scott. And can I jump in and say, I definitely appreciate the respect of calling me Dr. Ho, as an Asian American scholar who works in ethnic studies and critical race studies, but I genuinely am really comfortable with you calling me Jennifer if you wanted to, although I do understand I'm going to call you Dr. Scott, so I also understand that you may want to call me Dr. Ho for symmetry purposes. No, okay, so I appreciate that. Um, that is very interesting because the last episode that we had on the show actually started out the conversation really uh, talking about the same thing in terms of um, names. By default, particularly as a person, so I recently, this, you know, it's twofold, right? So I just finished my dissertation or my PhD program last summer. So really like six months ago. So for me, I'm always of the opinion of like, I'm just still in the mode of like giving folks their honorary, <laughs> their, uh, their honorary uh, respect. Um, and at the same time, too, you know, like still trying to, you know, wear the hat like myself. Um, but I do appreciate that as well. For the sake of, you know, the, the podcasting purposes, we can go by Quatez as well as Jennifer. Uh, I respect that as well. But as we were also talking about that, can you give a little bit more perspective on why you choose to go by Jennifer? Because you mentioned something briefly about that. Just that's a level of comfort. There's one thing, right, when you're talking about going by your honors or your professional title um, out of normality uh, or the normalcy of doing that, but you're talking about it from a place of comfort. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so I went to, I went to my, I did my undergraduate degree at UC Santa Barbara and several of the faculty that I really had close relationships with invited me to call them by their first name. 
And so I really took it as a sign of respect that I was invited to call faculty by their first name. And this included faculty of color. Um, so not all faculty of color, but some faculty of color invited me to call them by their first name. And it was so it was always something that as an undergraduate, I really appreciated. And as I, you know, did my PhD and then eventually got my PhD, I just decided I was more comfortable with also having my own students call me by my first name. And I began teaching um, postdoctorate at Moholio College, which is an all women's college. And I do remember actually one of my um, students who's herself gone on to become um, a scholar, Dr. Claudia Calhoun, um, came up to me one day and she said, you know, I really wish you would go by Dr. Ho, especially as a woman of color, because I think it's important for other um, women of color who are thinking about entering into the academy to see that women of color deserve the respect of a title. And I really took that seriously. And so when I got my first tenure track position at UNC Chapel Hill, I did start going by Professor Ho or in the tradition, actually, of my department at the time, the English department, Dr. Ho. And what I discovered after doing this for just one semester, I actually didn't even make it through an entire semester. Halfway through the semester, I actually told students that they could stop calling me Dr. Ho and Professor Ho, and, and that I actually preferred them calling me Jennifer. Because for me, it felt more authentic, for lack of a better word, right? For me, it felt like throughout my... Um, graduate school teaching in the teaching I did at Mount Holyoke, I had been called Jennifer. I had explained to students why I was comfortable. First, it was because I didn't have a doctorate and I, it just felt awkward, right? When you're in graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, and then afterwards, I just had gotten used to it. And so I just always had students call me Jennifer because I think for me, it was a sign of I'm inviting them to show me respect I'm, I'm inviting, I'm showing them respect, right? I mean, I am showing them respect by inviting them to call me Jennifer. I'm also really clear with them about the power differential in the classroom. Mm -hmm. The power differential in the classroom is I'm the professor and I assign grades. And there's just no ambiguity about it. If there's ever a moment that I think a student is not respecting me, I am very quick to, to tell them that I prefer that they call me Dr. Ho moving forward. And I have actually done that. Interestingly enough, not with any of my students, former or current, but with colleagues. Nice, and I, and I appreciate you sharing that. Because um, I'm, I mean, I'm still trying to find my own level of comfort with everything, and I think part of it too. I mean, once you graduate and you become, you know, doctor, whatever your name is, um, it's like, I mean, it's a new name, right? <laughs> no one, you didn't go by doctor. Ho for you know however many years it was before you earned your doctorate degree, just like I wasn't Dr. Scott until I became, you know, until the age of 33. So yeah, it's like a it's definitely it's definitely a process and a journey of learning what your level of comfort is. Um, but I also I you know, and folks can go back and listen to the last episode, but it is purely a reminder to folks that it is it has nothing to do, you know, with the preference inside of particularly inside of the classroom or even in um, formal workspaces of trying to assert some type of power dynamic or hierarchy inside of those spaces, or even just reminding folks that I have earned that. But it has everything to do with, I also want to honor the, um, I want to honor the experiences of the folks 
who have come before me who also have similar experiences, particularly those who are black. You know, as a as a black man, we are of some of the few, the smallest population of doctoral degree earners that are out there. So for me, it also serves to bring visibility to this particular community. So I do definitely uh, appreciate you sharing um, your experiences as well. That's a, that's a lot of great information for folks to think about. Well, and, and I do want to say, um, and I am going to say Dr. Scott, because I actually think, <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad that you brought up, I mean, this is a podcast, so people can actually see what we look like. And I let me just also say optics are but one way that we judge race. So we should not necessarily judge race only by optically how people appear. Yeah. But I do think there's a difference, me choosing to go by um, Jennifer as an Asian American educator at a predominantly white campus versus um, you going by Dr. Scott or choosing when to invite people to call you Quatez as a Black educator and PhD. Because, because of the way that I'm perceived, right, we could say because of the model minority myth that, that is associated with Asian Americans, where we assume an Asian American woman in a higher ed space belongs there. Mm-hmm. Right. In in some capacity as student, mm-hmm. as as researcher, as professor, whereas that is not the case with black men. We do not normally, I would say, in general, assume that a black man on a college campus at a predominantly white institution belongs there. In fact, mm-hmm. we have a lot of evidence, um, including at CU Boulder, of black people who have had various Boulder police ask for IDs. Whereas I have never in any educational setting that I've been in ever been asked for my ID by, by the police, except when I got locked out. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, and that even just, you know, talking about that, one of my, I've had a couple, I've only been at CU Boulder and we can't shy away from our lived experiences, especially now we're going to talk about anti-racism, particularly in the context of teaching. But I mean, if you're going to talk about anti-racism, you can't avoid talking about racism and how it shows up in different forms, right? So, uh, or even just like what racist ideas are communicated uh, either orally or through our communications as well. But, you know, one of one of the most unfortunate experiences that I've had at CU Boulder was at the first and only football game that I attended. I got out of the car with my partner and we were heading over to the football field. And this was maybe an hour before kickoff. And there was a guy who literally stops and puts his hands on my shoulder. And then he says, why are you uh, just now getting to the game when you you should be down on the field warming up? Now, Mm, Now I'm wearing the same CU Boulder hoodie that I was wearing that that particular day, but I would imagine that individual probably didn't, you know, just by the looks of it, right? You know, stereotypically by the looks of it, he probably had no idea that I was also Dr. Scott walking down, (laughs) going toward that Mm -hmm. football game. But all he saw was a black body who's also a little bit more husky and then thinking that I should be playing on the football field, Um, you know, jokingly. Jokingly, uh, the only the only thing I took from that that made me feel somewhat better was the fact that I looked young enough to still be a football player, but <laughs> but, but but just how offensive you know that whole interaction was. So, do you mind if I ask Dr. Scott what did you? Because he, here's the thing, and I'm glad we're you know like I am glad we're just going there, right? Because I am yeah. I am somebody who's really direct, and I don't you know I believe we should just plunge right in. 
at, in the moment, what did you say or do? And is it any different that now that you've had time that you would say or do? Because I always find that in those moments, it's hard to figure out what to say or do. Um, it's hard to think, you know, like I think first and foremost for me, and I will say this as a woman, I often think about my own safety in the moment. So there may be something I'd want to say, but I may not feel safe to say um, because I just want to be able to extricate myself, even if I'm having other feelings of anger or discomfort or. um, So I think it might be, you know, again, this is anti, this is anti-racist pedagogy, right? What is it that Mm -hmm. we, we said out of safety or out of shock um, or just to extricate ourselves from the situation versus what would ideally you want to say? So in that moment, it was the same thing that you just talked about, um, that the word or the idea of what safety. So the the initial thing that took place when it happened was I quite literally paused and stopped. I mean, he kept walking like after he did that. And I paused. My mouth literally dropped because, you know, there's, you know, there's the covert racism that you will face wherever you go. But then there's like the overt racist things that that people do. And that was clearly like overt racism and in that moment I stopped my mouth just dropped and it felt like maybe I sat there for like five minutes but it probably wasn't more than anything but about you know 10 seconds or whatever and I turned around and I initially thought to go back and then say you know like what what made you think that it's appropriate one to put your hands on anybody that's race aside why would you ever put your hands on somebody and stop them while they're in the middle of walking but then two What made you think that it was appropriate to also even say that? In the midst of also stopping and then processing all of that, I also thought about not only who I was, but where I was as well. Because again, I'm there now really as a guest to attend a football game because we purchased tickets to go. But at the same time too, I'm still technically now at my workplace. So at that point in time, you don't know where these interactions can go with other folks, because I know to me and with the work that I do and just being black in America in general, you know, those things just not are not okay. But when you're talking to white people in particular who don't have those experiences, who don't know how those things are offensive and how it comes across to other people, to me, it's a big deal. But then to that person, oh, I just meant it simply as a joke. And then if anything comes from that, because you also don't know this person, you don't know how they're going to react to that. And then also just being in America (laughs) and being in a largely racist society, Black people typically do not get the benefit of the doubt or often have um, have their feelings about issues like that really justified. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in that space, I was literally thinking all of those things processed in that five to 10 seconds before I then decided, you know what, let me go ahead and then ask this person why he felt like it was okay to even do that. But then by the time I turned around, he was far enough away that it really wasn't, that it really wasn't worth it at that point. Um, now going back to it, I wish in that moment that, <laughs> that I would, because it felt like I froze. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way I, I did freeze because I was still processing what are the next steps that I should take with that? But at the same time, too, like I said, I was thinking about my own safety and job security. But I was also thinking about my partner who was also with me, who was also very shocked that that took place as well, uh, who is actually um, 
Japanese American as well. So, you know, even for her, you know, just seeing that take place, she was also really offended. But then with her, and I don't want to speak for her because she's not here, but when we talked about it, but she also didn't know what to do at that point in time because it was just, it was just so shocking that somebody can just randomly do that to you as you're just walking. We're just looking to go enjoy a football game. And then five seconds out the car, that happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? That's what it means to occupy space as a non-white body on a predominantly white campus. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for sharing that story. I I hope it's a story, you know, every, anyone listening to this podcast, I hope it's a story that people really understand that it's hard to know what to say or do in the moment. Um, and I guess I would say if you knew, right, you, you, this is a total stranger, you have no idea who this person is, but let's imagine, right? Let's imagine that you could pinpoint who that person is. I believe, and this would only be if you were comfortable, of course, Dr. Scott, I believe that there's no, there's no, um, what's what I'm looking for? Statue of limitations on when you can confront someone. So I've actually written letters um, weeks later, months later, a year. I've actually gone to someone at my previous institution who's a vice provost and in person expressed how uncomfortable I was at a meeting in which I felt like I had really been silenced and where the only distinguishing factor between me and everyone else at the table was my gender. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I it, it was incumbent on me as a full professor, woman of color, that I go to the vice provost, who's a white man, and say, here's the experience in that meeting that I had. Um, here's what it felt like when I got silenced and I was the expert in the room. Yeah. No, and, I, and, and thank you for sharing that as well, because I definitely don't. I also am not. I, I don't think that there are statues of limitations uh, with those things as well. And, you know, of course, all of this took place at an institution of higher education. So we can we can always create educational moments for uh, for folks to consider um, as well. Yeah. You know, if if I came across that person, because I mean, honestly, at this point, I, I wouldn't know who that person was if I've walked past them 20 times now. <laughs> Uh, that that the person's face just escapes me, but the moment ha- clearly has not. Um, but yeah, I mean, if that person is even listening, to, you know, let's say this person actually works at CU Boulder and they're listening to this podcast even right now, you know. And I think what's important for folks to to do in these moments is to listen, right? You know, as Ibram Kendi talks about, you know, uh, the the heartbeat of racism is denial. And whenever you start to communicate to folks, you know, this is something that took place and this is how that made me feel. What did I go to initially when I was talking about this? I was initially thinking about how that person could potentially respond to it. But oftentimes it's in either minimizing what took place. That wasn't my intention. It was literally just a joke or even complete denial. Like that wasn't meant to be racist, you know, like whatsoever. So there's gaslighting that then take that then takes place with with all of that. I mean, in this place, at this moment, you know, clearly one can hear in me just talking about the story that I was hurt and offended by by that in and of itself. More particularly as someone who is a member of this community, because I don't think that a lot of folks consider that enough. You know, your individual 
act towards somebody else and then how that impacts someone's experience as a member of that said community. Even with being an American now, right? We talk so much about being proud to be an American and, you know, the situation with, you know, going back a, a few years to, you know, kneeling for, for the anthem or not, you have to consider what folks' experiences are as parts and members of that community, no matter what their other identities are. So, and then emphasizing that as well. So as a black person in America, as a black person, as a member of the CU Boulder community, it very much made me feel as, as a non-member of the community to walk toward a football game and be told that basically what you see me as is a football player on, on the football team and not as somebody who's teaching or working with professors around the community uh, to help them enhance their abilities to teach and reach all of the students that they come into proximity with. So, yeah. you, know, you know, I would communicate those things to folks and ask other educators to consider that as well. You know, as, as, as instructors, as educators, those are some, that's just a snippet of some of those stories that come inside of those spaces every single day. You walk in and what we typically see are students, as, at least we like to think that that's what folks see, um, but what you don't see and what you don't often hear of are the individual stories that every single last one of those students have um, about some of those favorable and non-favorable experiences that they're walking inside of that door with. And then you have to think about that as an instructor. What am I doing to either perpetuate a lot of those negative experiences or create new experiences, more positive experiences uh, for these students that I'm coming into contact with? And I'm hoping that, you know, when we finally get to the conversation today. <laughs> well, no, this is, this is no, no, no. This is the conversation, right? Because <laughs> I think, I think sometimes we believe that, like, if we're talking about anti-racist education or anti-racist pedagogy, that it's taking place on our syllabi in the space of the classroom. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the way that we show up in general in higher ed, whether that is on or off campus, whether that's in real life or in the space of the internet, social media, all of this matters, all of this contributes mm. to anti-racist teaching pedagogy praxis. So I really, you know, like your your story is so important, Dr. Scott, because anyone listening, it's an opportunity to really hear you, hear what that, like it it may have seemed like a joke from the point of view of the person who um, touched you. And I got to agree. Like, I am just like, because I have had people, um, I have had men, right, put their arm around me, you know, unprompted. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm like, in this day and age, why are people touching? <laughs> why are people touching me? Right? Why are right. people touching? If I have not invited you to touch me, you should not touch me. I, mm -hmm. I, I think that is really an important message to also um, to also share with everyone listening. And so, you know, like I'm thinking like, what if you were, what if you were a 20 year old student, right? What if you're a 20 year old student with your significant other and this happened to you and you are going to, you know, you're a college of engineering student, you're an art history student. Um, imagine what that means for you to try and participate in student life. Something as simple mm -hmm. as going to a CU Boulder football game, which is now tainted with this experience. This is this is why this all matters. 
Um, and I think the more we're able to give students, students of color, white identified students, opportunities to really hear one another, to reflect on these stories, to consider this from a different angle. Sure, maybe that person meant no harm. Maybe it was like, quote unquote, a joke to that person. You didn't receive it that way. Your partner didn't receive it that way. And chances are somebody who was watching that, like if I saw that, I would have been horrified mm-hmm. and also would have, you know, also probably would have been like, what the hell, you know, like, and not been, sorry to swear, not been sure what to do. Right. Because also I would think, should I, you know, like, how do we be active bystanders for one another? Right. Would it have been okay if I was watching that to have intervened and said, Hey, that seems kind of racist. What you just said, man, like, how would, I don't know if you would have appreciated somebody like me stepping forward, or if that would have felt like I was taking away agency from you. Cause I, I think for my students, cause I just finished teaching intro to social justice, they grapple with this, right? How much should they, especially when they are seeing something unfold and they are not a member of that group, right? So I'm not black identified. I'm seeing this happen. I'm seeing the way that you're being targeted specifically as a black man. Do I say something? And is that helpful to you or not? And and here's the other issue, right? You might think it's helpful. Somebody else might have a totally different, right? We're all you're we're all unique. You don't get to mm-hmm. just say, like me as the representative black person as you boulder, right? Like that's that's yeah. that's a heavy burden to put on you, right? You can only speak as Dr. Quates, right? Yeah. And that, you know, and in that too, right, you know, the the bystander piece of it, you know, as somebody who, and I appreciate you saying, you know, the the four-letter word, uh, what I was thinking in that moment was, we'll say, let's just be clear about that. I was also thinking of a very different four-letter word. And <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, that's the other thing as well. Not everybody needs someone to step in for them. Um, I always tell folks that, you know, safer than sorry, the, and, and understanding too, what folks are thinking about when it comes to bystander intervention, like that is something that, you know, you have to honor as well because folks are thinking about their own safety. They're also thinking about what they know about the situation. They're also thinking about uh, what they do and how that impacts the other person. If it's going to do more harm uh, than good to the other individual as well. So, right. There's no, it's not, it's not a clear, you know, do like step in or or don't, right? You know, there's a bunch of different things depending on also the situation in and of itself. You know, I always tell folks, you know, for me, um, whether or not I choose to step in and intervene in that moment, depending on like what's taking place, I try to at least try to check in with that person, you know, afterwards uh, if I see something because, you know, again, I want that person to at least know that someone else saw that. And even if it came to be, you know, a situation where it becomes documented or something and you need a witness to the situation or whatever, at the very least, I can serve as a witness to that situation for you. Um, But again, you know, depending on what takes place inside of that moment, there's a bunch of different things that are just going on. So, you know, for me, I just recognize and understand as someone who's been in that situation on all sides of it, because I won't sit here and say that I've never said or done anything to anybody else. That also hasn't been offensive, whether or not it was intentional or not. We all do those things. We're all either the perpetrators, we're the witnesses, or we're the or we're the victims of it. So we've all had those experiences with all of it. So being able to kind of, you know, pick 
and under, not pick from all of those and understand the experiences of all of that really helps to kind of grow our understanding of, you know, when we should step in, when we should not, how it feels when folks step in, how it feels when folks don't step in, you know, so on and so forth. You know, it's a, it's a very complex, com- complex situation to be in. But yeah, I appreciate you sharing that as well, because I, I tend to try to not, you know, you know, chastise anybody who doesn't step in or whatever, because, you know, you have to think about things. For, that's part of the empathy piece of it, right? You know, you have to be empathetic of yourself, but to a certain degree, and that honestly brings breeds a lot of maturity as well. How can you empathize with the folks who didn't step in and see from their perspective why they possibly did not do anything or step in at that point in time? You know, so, you know, it's a whole conversation in and of itself. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought the, in the part about checking in with the person who has experienced some kind of harm, because that's certainly, I don't know if you're familiar with, they used to be called Hollaback and they're now called Right to Be. No. And, um, oh, I'll, I'll send you a link. So for anyone yeah, listening, yeah. you could Google Right to Be, formerly I Hollaback, and they do active bystander trainings. They're free. They're one hour. They're really wonderful. And one of the things they emphasize are the five Ds. And the ethos of active bystander training or active bystander intervention is not to try and challenge the person who's creating harm, but to protect the person who's being harmed, first Mm -hmm. and foremost. Um, And they do emphasize safety, which is one of the reasons, right, why they say you may not want to try and engage with the person who's creating harm because you don't want to escalate a situation to make it worse for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so rather the emphasis should be on how can you protect the person being harmed and enlist other people in the area to also protect the person being harmed. No, that's really cool. I, I appreciate that. Well, let's completely shift gifts. You just shift not gifts. You know, it's the Christmas time, right? Holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> I got gifts literally tonight as I was talking about my partner, we're doing, cause I'm not going to be here for Christmas. Um, so I'm flying back home. Uh, and we are doing things with her family this weekend before I ultimately fly home. So, uh, tonight is when we're doing our gift exchange. So clearly nice. my mind is, I'm, I'm thinking about my, uh, receiving gifts and giving gifts <laughs> as well this, this evening. Um, so with your work, you know, I like to talk about, you know, understanding like where folks journey to college teaching is and what it has been. You know, one of the things I was talking, I forget who I was talking to about a week or so ago, but, you know, college educators, you know, there's some folks who love teaching in the areas of their expertise. And then there are people that I believe enjoy che- teaching, like the literally like teaching and building those relationships with students. So can you share with us what your journey to college teaching has, like, can you describe how that's been for you? And then what do you describe as the role of college instructors uh, today in higher education? Oh, that second question is a big one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, let me let me just tackle that one first because it'll be easy to forget that one. I I guess I would say um, there's a lot of pressure being put on college educators to be a lot of different things, to be the repositories of expert knowledge, to prepare students for a career, to get them fully equipped to understand the different nuances of the major or the discipline in which they are getting their degree in. And I I guess I would say, 
I don't know that I have a single answer for what I think college educators should be doing. Be- but I but I hope, I guess here's what I, my hope is. My hope is that every college educator wants to provide a learning environment for students where they can really stretch their intellectual curiosity and where they can feel that they can show up as fully enfranchised humans. Mm-hmm. And I think if so, if we do those two things, right, if we try and create a classroom community where students, where we can spark students' intellectual curiosity and where we can create an atmosphere where students can really show up as their whole selves, then that's the best that we can hope for, right? We, we can add on a list of other things that we hope can get accomplished, but those are the two most basic things, certainly that I try and do every time. I walk into a classroom space and I'm definitely somebody who I feel like if I won the lottery and I won a billion dollars, right? There was a billion dollar lottery. <laughs> um, and, and I know that some people think I'm being disingenuous, but I, I don't think I would change anything because I genuinely love doing what I do. And I'd still teach. I'd still want to teach because I feel like no matter what the subject is, I really enjoy the atmosphere of teaching, of being with students, of creating a collaborative learning environment with them. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Well, I will say if I won a billion dollars today, I think I'll still teach. Um, But but the car that I pull up in might be a little different. Some of some of the aesthetics of my life might be a little different, but I, I think I would still I think I would still teach too. No, <laughs> no. So the uh, the first part of the question was related to your journey. So can you tell us about what your journey to college teaching has been? Yeah. So I um, so I once wrote an essay called "The Accidental Academic" because this is not where I thought I would be. Not and I I have no complaints about where I am. But I guess I just mean I'm the daughter of a refugee father from China and an immigrant mother from Jamaica. And my mom's parents were also immigrants from Hong Kong to Jamaica. And so there's a lot of ways as a first generation um, immigrant kid that seeing myself as a university professor was just not what I grew up with. And so I feel like I have sort of accidentally found myself in these spaces where I am a college professor. I'm super grateful that that happened. And I think that really happened through a variety of mentors in my life who really encouraged me, who saw something in me and really wanted me to um, think bigger than I was thinking. Because when I graduated from UC Santa Barbara, I was just thinking, I really like to teach. And so I'll go into high school teaching. And actually, let me just also pause here and say, and that would have been wonderful because I think high school teachers are amazing. I think all of our K through 12 educators are amazing. Um, One of my, actually more than one of my professors, when I mentioned this to them and I was looking for letters of recommendation so I could apply to a single subject um, master's program where I would get my teaching credential simultaneously, you know, they said, look, Jennifer, you're too smart to be a high school English teacher. You should really think about going to graduate school. Now, I want to be really clear about something. Um, That was a well-intentioned but poor message to give me. That I was too smart to be a high school English teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
I understood, like I took it as a compliment. I, I think it was meant as a compliment. And it did allow me to think beyond just high school teaching. And I am grateful to that. Again, not that there would have been anything wrong with being a high school teacher, but I, I think I what I'm grateful for is professors who really tried to expand my thinking of what I could achieve. Like that's the, ultimately, I think the the message that's really important is that um, I think I, what I wish is that they would have said like, look, if you want to be a high school teacher, that's great. And we need smart high school English teachers. Let me give you some other possibilities of where you could go. And let me try and encourage your intellectual curiosity if you think this is where your intellectual curiosity wants to lead you. Because that's actually what I think what they were saying, right? We think mm-hmm. you have an intellectual curiosity in which doing a PhD would be useful for you, in which case then you might want to think about college-level teaching versus high school-level teaching. And, and I think I still, you know, and so I probably would have still ended up where I ended up with that message. And I think that is an important message, again, for those of us who are educators and we are having students who are high school age, college age, come to us and think about career possibilities, that we give them a limitless sense of what they potentially could do. Like I remember when I was in graduate school, I used to work for um, the Summer Bridge program at Boston University. And I remember vividly, there was, I can't remember his name. So let's just call him John young African-American man, first-generation right college, in, living in working-class neighborhood in Boston. And, you know, I pulled him aside and I said, listen, I don't know if your high school guidance counselors are talking to you about college, but, you know, I'm happy to sit down with you and kind of suggest different colleges that you could apply to. He looked at me like I was crazy, right? Now, it's a summer bridge program. It's designed for you to go to college. But he really just, you know, I was the first person to really pull him aside because I said, look, you might want to think about like which college you want to go to because you might want to think about which law school you want to go to. Because I could already see that this was somebody who not just was going to go to college, but really should be encouraged to go on. And he seemed to like have the mind of somebody who would really thrive in a law school environment. And so he just said, no one's ever talked, like he, he just told me, like, no one's ever talked to me like that before. Um, and he actually did, he didn't go on to law school, but he did, he did go on to, a, to get his PhD. Um, and that's, you know, again, like, I, I'm not taking credit for that. I think he, he was an amazing person and he had many wonderful mentors, but I hope that I was a small part of his story, at least in saying, yeah, there's other possibilities for you than just, you know getting into whatever college they, they're going to tell you you can get into. Well, and you don't have to take away, you know, you don't have to take away all credit from yourself either. Right. Because, and, you know, I don't want to speak for that other individual. It, just as another black male, I wasn't talked to about going, even just going to college. I was also in the foster care system. So for me, you know, there's, there's a, it's really compounded by a lot of different identities and experiences that I've had, but no one talked to me about going even to college, probably until my junior year of of high school. And I can't really remember anyone um, until I got to my maybe like the second or third year of my bachelor's degree where I talked about even going to get, you know, a higher level of uh, a higher level of education. So, you know, when I say, you know, don't take away all credit from yourself because you never know just what that one singular moment did, or even how often, you know, because there are a lot of times where I reflect back on a lot of interactions that I've had with folks 
that have really made a difference in my life, especially when I was feeling really low about something. So, you know, for me, when I talk about don't take away, you know, all credit, all, you know, we have different, we have different, you know, was it, um, you know, you have a penny, you have a quarter, you have a nickel, you have a dollar, right? You know, so you may, you, you may not have given that student a hundred dollars in terms of like, you know, whatever, like uh, in term in, into the bank, but you put something inside of that student, you deposited something inside of that student that clearly made a difference enough for him to even communicate that to you in that moment that no one's even shared anything like that with him. So uh, I would imagine that that was something that that student went and referred back to uh, often enough, often as I have done the same thing in my own personal life. So now that's really cool to hear. And that goes into, right, you know, teaching, you know, and particularly like anti-racist teaching, you know, the, you know Ibram Kendi defines um, anti-racist as one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. You know, now we're, we're putting this into the context of education. We're talking about, you know, supporting these anti-racist ideas. Typically, I default to, you know, students, you know, what types of anti-racist ideas um, can we begin to formulate and, and promote about students, particularly students of color? And then how can we use these ideas to create anti-racist policies, even policies that we have for the ways in which we engage with our students? So can you talk a little bit about, you know, just like your journey to, you know, anti-racism and how that's contributed to the ways in which you teach inside of the classroom today? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Um, I think the most simple way to say this is that I'm always, I'm somebody who always wanted life to be fair. Mm -hmm. For me, for you, for everybody, for everyone, I just feel like um, I want life to be fair. And so any time of type of inequity from the from a really young age drove me sort of bananas. And really vividly, like the, the anecdote that I've been telling lately is that when I was in um, the fourth grade, I had a teacher, Mrs. Carter. And I was complaining to her because, um, you know, in the fourth grade, what's important to you is, is recess and playground equipment. Yeah. And I really love playing tetherball and I really love playing foursquare. And how things were set up was that there was this one area that had a big box and it had all the playground equipment in it. And the kids who got to the playground equipment first were able to get the better playground equipment. Now, generally speaking, in the fourth grade, um, boys tended to run faster than girls, right? Mm -hmm. Not trying to make, you know, and apologies for the gender binary, but that's during the time I was raised, right? That's how we, we talked mm -hmm. about boys and girls. And so I raised this as an issue to Mrs. Carter that I was noticing that the boys were getting to the playground equipment faster and therefore were getting the better equipment. And therefore I didn't get to have as good of equipment. And so in other words, could we find a different system? Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Carter said to me, Jennifer, life's not fair. Just get used to it. And I thought that was a terrible thing to say to yeah. a fourth grader. And I remember thinking that, right? I remember thinking like, adults shouldn't be talking to me this way. You can't tell me that life's not fair and I have to get used to it. And I guess the, I've tried to, I've never gotten used to it, right? I've never gotten used to life not being fair and I do think that a lot of my experiences as a woman of color, right, as someone who grew up um, working class to middle class, first generation college student, Chinese American, 
um, women identified, like all of these things have contributed to the way that I experience life. I also have always had, I would say, friends of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, um, different gender and sexualities, and then hearing their stories, right? So that's why it can never be just about like me wanting life to be fair for Asian American women. I want life to be fair for all of the people who are also experiencing various types of inequities. So I know we're really focused on anti-racism, but mm-hmm. but one of the things that I also say in the classroom is that anti-racism work is inextric- inextricably linked to anti-oppression. Mm-hmm. We're not going to end racism and then keep toxic masculinity or keep religious bigotry or cl- keep class inequity. If we're going to have liberation from racism, it will necessitate having freedom from other types of oppression, which I will say in a classroom space is distressing for my students to hear because it's hard enough to think about the end to racism. And now I'm telling them, yeah, and we're going to stop the patriarchy and there's not going to be anti-LGBTQ plus issues. And we're going to get, we're going to get rid of anti-Semitism. And we're going to get rid of Islamophobia. And we're going to solve class issues. And they're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is too much, right? It's too much to think about solving all of these isms together. And I get that. It's so overwhelming when they're just trying to ask me, how do we get the world to be a little bit less racist? And and predominantly my teaching is on anti-racism um, because I do feel like as a single human, I can't quite have the expertise necessary to adequately address intervening in all of these different types of oppressions, right, as an expert. But I do think it's incumbent on me as an anti-racism educator to say, yeah, we need to end racism and we need to end sexism and we need to end homophobia and, and, and. Yeah. And it's a growing, anti-racism specifically, right, is very much still a growing area. And one of the, first off, you jumped ahead. So you jumped ahead of the question I was going to ask about the intersectionality behind anti-racism. And I love that as well. You know, if we're, if we're, it can't be anti-racist if it's not anti-oppressive. I really, I love that, right? So, because there are so many other issues in the, there are so many issues within, you know, racism in and of itself, right? You know, we're going to talk, let's just talk about what just took place, you know, a, a month or so ago down in Colorado Springs, you know, the shooting at at the nightclub. Now, there there were people of all races that were victimized at, in that particular incident. But when we're talking about issues that affect the LGBTQ community, it's oftentimes people of color that are that are overwhelmingly the victims of that of that particular community, particularly in the trans community. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a, a huge expert in that area, so I won't go too far into talking about it. But those are the things that we know. Right. So we can't be anti-racist, but then not care about. The, the folks who are also members of the LGBTQ community as well, because there are particularly areas, most specifically related to violence, that they faced at, at a higher rate than those who are simply, you know, Black identifying people out in the country, right? So they have they added layers of oppression that they are really under the thumb of. So there's a lot of that that we have to that we have to consider for sure. As that relates then to you know, the ways in which you engage the classroom, you know, let's just talk about that. You know, like what is typically your approach to 
you know, your classroom dynamics and, and how you um, strive to be an anti-racist, you know, educator, right? Because it's not just about saying I am anti-racist. It's about the ways in which we strive to be anti-racist because, you know, I tell people this all the time and, and Kenny talks about this a lot in, in his book. And I don't want to just over-promote him because there are other folks who do some really uh, great work as well, even your own <laughs> work. You know, there's a whole anti-racism uh, Coursera that you have developed um, along with, uh, can you remind me the name of the other individual that you Sure, Sean O'Neill. He's a, uh, uh, I should say Dr. O'Neill because yeah. uh, Sean just defended his dissertation successfully. And so he is now Dr. O'Neill. Congratulations, um, Dr. O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill is a wonderful human. Uh, it did his PhD uh, at Ethnic Studies here at CU Boulder and is my collaborator on the anti-racism courses. No, awesome. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, you know, just talk about like how you have, uh, how you approach, you know, doing that work in your own classroom and in terms of like how either you structure the class or even just with re relationship dynamics. Yeah. So I guess I would say, I think for me, my anti-racist practices are, are really inextricable, maybe inextricable, sorry from my my teaching of inclusion. So mm -hmm. in other words I think that we could I could I could label it as anti-racist or I could label it as inclusive. I think in some ways it doesn't matter. But that is really what I'm aiming for in the classroom. So going back to the question of like what do college you know who should how should college educators show up? Um and I you know one of the things I said is to create a classroom in which people can show up as their whole selves and and I think that is an anti-racist desire of mine for students to be able to show up as their whole selves. Um, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial, even conservative students, right? Mm -hmm. I Because I have definitely been someone who conservative students have taken the classes with, either um, because I think they have a curiosity or because in one case, I had a student at my previous institution who said he took my class to be the conservative gadfly. Um, it was important for me to create a classroom environment where he could say the things that he wanted to say. It was also important for me to create a classroom environment in which when he said things that were inflammatory, that were provocative, that were offensive, that I also could challenge him and I could create a space in which his peers could challenge him not to demean him, but to confront him. And so respect is a huge part of that. Respect for different people's viewpoints um, and the ability to let my students also share what they are feeling and thinking so that when you do have a conservative student who says something that's inflammatory and potentially offensive, that I can say something to challenge factually what the student is saying. And I can also give space to my students so that they can share with how they are feeling and then I can then manage the classroom space together. That's probably the most challenging thing, I would say, as an anti-racism educator, because I don't want, I don't want to privilege the conservative student's voice and I don't want to shut the conservative student's voice down. So how do you, how are you able to hold that hold mm -hmm. a variety of different perspectives. I also think students are on a, you know, they're on their own path, right? Different students have different 
ways of processing information. Students who I've assumed were conservative, actually it turns out that they were grappling with different things and Mm. using the space of the classroom to really sound out different ideas to maybe pair things that they had heard in their families of origin and then maybe process what they were reading and what they were discussing against the other conventional wisdom that they had grown up with. And I think we have to allow for that, right? There's not a particular timeline for someone to go from, I'm learning about the fact that this is a settler colonial nation and even understand what that term means, right? What settler colonialism is. Mm -hmm. So how do you get a student who's never even heard the term settler colonialism or really grappled with the transatlantic slave, right? The fullness of what the transatlantic slave trade means. And to think about labor exploitation of people from Latin America and Asia, because that's the foundation of the United States, right? Those four things in particular are foundational to the wealth of the United States. Mm -hmm. So how do you get a student who's never had the United States, U.S. history and stories about what it means to be American? All of a sudden, I'm talking about settler colonialism and talking about the transatlantic, like I'm talking about all this stuff, right? And they're thinking, wait a minute, but I was taught that Columbus discovered America. And I was taught that the pilgrims came together with Indians and that's why we have Thanksgiving, right? Mm -hmm. um, So I, I feel like we have to allow students to really learn at their pace. You know, not to be the not and but not to control the classroom, but to be able to say, okay, how can I meet this particular student where they're at? And the student who has been taking these courses, right, has been doing reading on the side, has been having a lived experience, let's say, as a Latina woman in the world. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I make sure that she gets to also say, this is my lived experience? These are the like yeah, you don't have to tell me about any of this stuff because I've been living this and my family's been living this and I've been doing this kind of work. That's also the challenge, right? When you have different students who are coming from not just different backgrounds, but a different different pace of which they are learning and processing. For sure. And I, you know, I appreciate that as well, you know, uh, because I had a similar experience a couple of years ago when I was a, a doctoral student at the University of Toledo. I was teaching this class it was Africana studies. So a lot of it went in, first off, it was just way too much in terms of, it was too much in one in 16 weeks or 15 weeks really for students. Cause it went from like 6,000 BCE up and up through president Barack Obama's presidency. So that's a lot, right? You know, there's, there's some, even just, there's decades in that, that you could focus an entire class on <laughs> that still might be overwhelming for some students. So there was just a lot of information to cover, but I had, I can't tell you how many experiences that I had with those students and, and particularly the white identified students who stated that they never learned some of these concepts or some of those things when they were in high school, or really, you know, even, you know, before high school or the ways in which some of those topics were taught were were just different or they were told from like a different perspective, you know, and like you say, you know, the conventional method of, of teaching them typically isn't from the, the perspective of, of people of color or sometimes, you know, I won't say, you know, real history because history that we've learned, right. You know, it's about uh, narratives, right. So, but there are a lot of narratives that have been told that have not come from the perspectives of, of people of color. So, you know, for me, 
Carter G. Woodson, you know, he wrote the book, you know, Miseducation of, of, of the Negro. But really, there's a miseducation of uh, there's a miseducation that's just going on in America just in general, particularly in the K through 12 system. Uh, which really affects a lot of the ways in which, one, our students and our young people understand the world in which we live in and how this world really, it's, it's been structured in a lot different ways than what they've come to know. And then by the time you get to college and then you have a lot more of these non-K through 12 perspectives that are being delivered and they're being now introduced to these various different perspectives, even on their own being challenged, to learn and grow inside of some of these areas, uh, it then gets back into some of that, some of the denial that they come into, or how now they have to uh, grapple with how to how do they minimize it, you know, as much as possible in terms of like, oh, it really wasn't, you know, like that bad. Or now, well, okay, well, these things happened, you know, X amount of years ago, so there's really, you know, like no 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 excuse for for some of these inequities or some of these issues to to continue to persist. So there are so many conversations that I had with students at that point in time in that particular class. But there was one day that was really my favorite. Uh, we had these started discussions. And I'll try to talk about this quickly because I know we're running up on about an hour now. So uh, there was one day in particular in which um, I had students in the threaded discussions pose questions based upon either something that was mentioned in the course meeting or in the uh, the readings that they had a question about. And when your peers respond to you, of course, you have to respond back to them. But everything that you talk about has to be cited in terms of your response. So you can't just, you know, this is what I think it is. Well, what is something that you've read that supports that particular position? And it doesn't have to be from the course materials. It can really be from anything else. And one student, I consider this to be like a layup of a question, because the question was, you know, during, uh, during enslavement, did folks believe that slavery took place because that's just the way that it was or because of racism? Now, if you understand like racism, uh, one of the core pieces of racism is that these policies are in place largely because they are race based. <laughs> so when you read the policies, it will tell you like it not only are you looking at it from from the outcome perspective, but what level of race does it speak to? Like, is it being explicitly identified as one of the reasons that, to, to justify that? So you have about 12 students that, that responded to this particular student. Three of them were students of color, particularly black students. Everyone else was white. All, when I say all, all of the white students supported the notion that uh, that slavery or enslavement took place simply because that's just the way that it was. It wasn't because of racism. And, you know, what you learn through John Dewey, educational philosopher, you know, he tells us that one of the issues with education is that often we move, we don't move enough at the pace of the students. We move at the pace of the content in terms of like what they should be learning. Or what we're supposed, or what we identify that we're supposed to be teaching them. Now, like I just stated, that class goes from 6,000 BCE up until President Barack Obama's presidency. So there's <laughs> a lot to cover, right? Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, I could have very well just left that alone and just said, you know, okay, they didn't get it. Um, they were incorrect. Went through all of the, th the threads and then told them that, you know, hey, this, please cite, you know, where this is coming from. But instead, I came to that next meeting and 
said, hey, we're going to we're going to pivot a little bit off of off of the syllabus. So and then I set the tone for it. There was a thread that I came across where there was a question that was asked. And I noticed that the folks who opted for this one perspective, nobody supported where that was coming from through any type of literature. So then I went and pulled up about 10 policies that were um, that were a part of you know that time period, whether or not that was Jim Crow, you know, Declaration of all these other different policies, and then pointed out the, the pieces where it talked about race. So then I stated, if you all can identify these and the elements of it that are based upon race, why is it so difficult for us to acknowledge that slavery and enslavement took place? because of race mm. and racism and you could hear a pen drop it was just so quiet mm. for what felt like 20 minutes but it maybe was maybe it was about 30 seconds but it was long and then finally a student said you know as a white person when i sit here and then like learn this stuff and then i think about myself as being a white person i can't help but to feel guilty by association and it uh, like you can literally feel like the weight being lifted off of some of the students' shoulders inside of that room. Like finally somebody said it, right? <laughs> but it was one of those elements. It was one of those points where that's what it's about, you know. Like, first off, I didn't indoctrinate any of them. You know, you're giving them the opportunity one to formulate questions themselves, um, but then two, challenging your peers inside of that inside of that course to also come to their own opinion that's also supported by the literature. So they weren't indoctrinated to believe that it was all about racism, um, but really getting a process together that, that getting a process together where you can also support your stance and your position from that. But even just the question, the conversation that took place after that for the rest of the 40 minutes inside of that space, that was one of my, even from being a student myself inside of classes, that was my all-time favorite learning moment mm. because it allowed all of us to one get the elephant out <laughs> inside of the room but then two to just talk about the the real problem is that it's just hard to talk about these things like it's mm -hmm. hard it's hard to now see history through a different lens especially as a person who is a non-person of color and then to really see the dehumanizing acts that people who look like me perpetuated on this particular community of people. And that to me was like one of the most liberating experiences inside of that classroom. And that's why I particularly love a lot of the conversations, not just about, you know, anti-racism, you know, or like critical race theory, but just like what you're talking about, the fairness of it all. You know, being able to look through the history of our country and even just now looking at the unfairness that takes place, but then oftentimes, I mean, being able to identify thematically who is often on the disadvantaged side of unfairness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether or not you are a member of the LGBTQ community, a person of color, a person who is from a lower socioeconomic status, you know, uh, as, a, as a woman in our country, as a person who is non-gender conforming, being able to look at the unfairness that folks who identify categorically in these groups and then how often that occurs that is also a part of you know my passion for for doing the work and also you know talking with folks like you and learning from folks like you as well when i stated that at the beginning 
that really was, that was such an empowering conversation that I heard you having with the other faculty inside of that space, because that's one of the things that I would like for us to do in our Center for Teaching and Learning in particular. We talk a lot about how we are establishing a climate with the folks who are already here, while you were talking to the folks who were coming here, who were coming into the university, right? Because that's just that's as equally as important because after a year or so, folks in literature will support this, the ways in which we learn how to teach sets the tone for how we will always teach. And for many folks, you know, if you don't learn how to become more inclusive at the onset, at the initial steps of you teaching at the college level, um, if you are learning to teach in ways that are just naturally exclusionary, you're going to oftentimes leave out a lot of those same groups of students that I just named off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's antithetical, right, to, to the nature of teaching at any level, but particularly at the college level. And it also does another thing, too. You know, when we're talking about the, socio, uh, the social and the economic impact that a college degree can have on another student. You, talk, you gave the example of that student coming into that summer bridge program. You know, no one talked or empowered him as much or has seen him, you know, doing those things. And then where you saw him grow to was not just a one-time college graduate, um, but likely a three-time college graduate earning that PhD, depending on what their field is. But at the end of the day, he still earned a degree that now puts his uh, you know, economic, you know, social, you know, life in a different stratosphere than what it would have been with a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or even just a high school diploma. So those, it's a very liberating experience for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of, you know, part of anti-racism pedagogy is being, not being afraid to have these conversations, mm. not being afraid to create a space in the classroom where students can disagree, work out things. Um, and it, again, it's difficult, right? It's difficult to hold space in the classroom for students who've had different levels of education around talking about race and racism, talking about intersectional oppression, and students who are coming from more conservative backgrounds where they are working through ideas or where they're being openly antagonistic. That happens mm -hmm. too. And that is super challenging when you're an instructor to have students who are openly challenged. And I will say this, right? This is definitely something I have had to navigate as a woman of color instructor from when I was in graduate school and teaching composition classes. And I would have um, usually young white men openly challenged my authority. I had one young man when I was a graduate student who literally told me that I was his employee because his tuition money was paying my salary. And therefore, if he wanted a certain grade, I should comply. You can imagine that it doesn't go over very well to tell someone that you're their employee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> we we're yeah. both probably thinking the same four letter word in our head. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, the uh, the audacity, right? <laughs> well, the last question that I have for you is, you know, it's more related to I I was asked this really great question a couple of weeks ago when I was facilitating this uh presentation. So there's one um that I conduct now which is based off of title-wise the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, but it's, you know, the presentation is called What Inclusive Instructors Are Doing, but it's really, a, it's comprehensive of 
a lot of inclusive education literature that's out there. So what I like to remind folks is that when we're talking about inclusive pedagogy, I use inclusive pedagogy really as an umbrella term um, because there are a lot of different frameworks that you can apply that would really fall under the, the umbrella of that's, that's an inclusive way of teaching that class. Three things that to keep in mind are that inclusive teaching are, you know, it's, it focuses on equitable practices inside of, inside of the learning space. So how are we looking to meet the needs of our students collectively as the collective class, but then also individually amongst the individual students inside of that space, how we are creating a, a learning environment that is welcoming of all of our students. Then that third piece is the active learning component of it, which isn't, you know, on the surface, people take it as, you know, active learning. Typically, sometimes we think of, you know, like just posing a question and then hoping that, you know, getting students to respond back. But uh, there's a lot of psychological research now that is now focused on the active learning components of it in terms of how we are, one, incorporating students into the structure of the class and how you build the curriculum. Um, also, you know, what does group work and group dynamics look like? Because, uh, of course, students, what research shows, they learn more from each other than they will learn from the from the instructor, singularly, right? So how are we creating learning environments that actively engage students in the process of teaching as, as well as, as learning? So the question I have for you is, how would you communicate you know, the, how would you communicate, you know, the principles of anti-racist or inclusive teaching to those instructors who teach in the sciences? Because I had a, a faculty member who stated, is it easier to teach some classes more, you know, inclusively than it is for others? And I think to a certain degree, naturally, that's the case, because, right, if you're teaching, if you're teaching literature, uh, that's a lot different than if you're teaching over in the sciences where a lot of things seems to be very procedural or like step by step or like you do this and then you do this. <laughs> so, you know, what what would be some things that you would communicate to faculty or instructors over in, in the sciences about the ways that they can in, they can engage in inclusive and active or inclusive and anti-racist teaching? Yeah, that's thank you for for asking that question. I definitely think that no matter what discipline you're teaching, you can engage inclusive practices and no matter what size of the classroom. So one thing that instructors can do, and it does mean rethinking the syllabus. It mm -hmm. does mean sort of rethinking how much time you are choosing to put on different subject material. But, and that's actually maybe the first step, right? Is to recognize that if you wanna create an inclusive classroom environment and there's finite time in the semester, Something's got to give. And one of those things might be fill in the blank. I was, I wanted to teach this. You might have to pull that out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm also a big proponent of slow learning. And so that means that I will take extra time with things because I would rather have students go into depth on one issue or one book or one article rather than give them the breadth of the, of the many things that they could be reading. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I think that we can all do, no matter what our size our classroom is, is to create classroom community guidelines together. And that's something I do on the second class period of every class I teach. Um, sometimes I take the whole class period. Sometimes I take half the class period. It really depends. 
but I invite students to think about the kind of classroom environment they want, whether it is a 300-person lecture class or a 15-person graduate seminar. And I create a Google Doc and they are invited to write. And then I either in the moment edit it down, or if it's a large class, I take the next day to edit it down. And then the next time we get together, I've edited it down into um, 10 items or less. And sometimes I will group them. And I will ask students to read through the community guidelines that they have created, that we have co-created. And to indicate whether there's anything that they want to edit or anything that they have an objection to. And then I say, you know, I ask them if they want me to be the person to enforce or if they want to have a different structure of enforcing the community guidelines. They always want me to enforce. I mean, they don't want to narc on each other, right? (laughs) That's inclusive. Like, that's an inclusive pedagogical act, right? You are empowering students to think about what they want the classroom environment to be like. You're, you know, if you are teaching subjects that are difficult to talk about, as talking about race and racism are, it allows students to get out whatever fears they might have and to be able to address what those are. Largely, students want to be sure that they get heard and that they're respected no matter what their viewpoint is. And so then we read through it together and like that's inclusive teaching, that's inclusive pedagogy. You can do that in any subject, chemistry, physics, biology. And here's the other thing. The STEM fields may seem like they are neutral, but STEM fields, like other disciplines, exist in the world that we live. And the world that we live is a patriarchal world that in the United States is subject to white supremacy. So if we think about like who has won the Nobel Prize in, in, this, in the various scientific categories, many more male names than female names and no gender non-binary people who at least have identified as such have ever won the Nobel Prize to the best of my knowledge. If you look at all of the major prizes, if you look at the faculty who are teaching in these subjects, if you look at who is publishing these works, right, in the STEM fields, that is one easy way to be inclusive, right, and to, and to, and to front load talking about racism and sexism and other forms of intersectional oppression. There's a reason there are more male identified people who are publishing and who are faculty and scholars. And it's not because men are better at science. It's because we live in a patriarchal world. And again, there's a reason why most of those names of those men have traditionally been white in the United States. Dr. Ho, thank you so much for joining us here today. This was awesome. First off, I recognize that we took more than an hour. Uh, <laughs> so thank you all to our listeners for uh, for listening in um, here today. This is a lot of great information, a lot of great uh, takeaways. To all of our listeners, if there are any questions or not questions, if there are any proposed uh, segments that you would like for us to have or episodes that you would like for us to have uh, to try to be inclusive, please send me an email related to what questions that you have. And I'll do my best to identify either faculty staff uh, that we have on our own respective campus or identify other folks across the country who are also doing some really great work as it relates to uh, inclusive pedagogy or inclusive education in higher education in particular. Again, my name is Dr. Scott. I am the inclusive pedagogy lead at the University of Colorado Boulder. And as we are preparing now to wind down this year, I wanna wish you all a warm and wonderful new year as well as a happy holiday season. Thank you all so much for joining us here today and we will talk to you again soon.